So tonight is the seventh session in our series, A Better Story, God, Sex, and Human Flourishing. And tonight we're focusing directly on the issue of homosexuality. Now, as we get started, I I want us to remember a very important thing. We're not just talking about an issue. We're talking about people, real people, a diverse group of beautiful people created in God's image, people who are often marginalized, misunderstood, shamed, shunned by people who don't share their experiences. And we're talking about people who are infinitely valuable in God's eyes. And so this afternoon, we have a gift of hearing from Dylan and Spencer, two people from our church. Dylan is gay and Spencer is queer, and they're going to to spend some time with us. What's going to happen is first, Dylan is going to come up in just a moment, and he's going to tell us a little more about his story. And then I'm going to teach for about 50 minutes or so, and then we'll have Q&A. And in the Q&A, the first half will be with me about the material in the lecture, and then we'll invite Spencer and Dylan up for the second half of the Q&A. So you got these cards. The three slips of paper are for questions or reflections for me on the lecture. The index card are questions or reflections you might have for Spencer or Dylan or me in in issues raised by them or our relationships with one another. All right. With that being said, Dylan, come on up, and I'll pray, and then Dylan is going to share with us. Our Lord Jesus Christ, I love that passage that uh, Wilson had read for us this morning in Proverbs 8 that you are the wisdom of God. You were dancing at the side of the Father when this amazing world was created. I love how in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that you're our sanctification, you're our justification, you're our righteousness, and you are our wisdom. And we love you. And we love this beautiful world you've made. And we ask that you would give us the gift of yourself tonight, that we as a church will grow wiser. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so good evening, everybody. My name is Dylan Krieger. Um, My pronouns are he, him. Um, To give a little bit of context, if you need a refresher or weren't here last week, um, I'm not originally from Harrisonburg. I'm from a small town in southwest Virginia, right off of exit 60 on Interstate 81 called Rural Retreat. Um, I grew up in a Pentecostal holiness church where my granddad was the pastor and my dad was the youth pastor. Um, So for me, growing up um, in like elementary age, when I was really, really young, I didn't really feel like I fit in with the other boys. I didn't participate in predominantly masculine activities So sports, um, in my area, it was really big to go hunting or go fishing. It was really hard for me to get into those things or enjoy those things. And so I always compared myself to other guys my age and thought that um, I felt very like, I felt like an outsider and felt like I didn't belong. 
Um, my friendships, I gravitated more towards girls than I did towards guys. Um, this was especially hard for me growing up because my dad was also someone who really loved sports and hunting and fishing. Um, and I never ever doubted once that my dad did not love me. Um, and I still looked up to him as a spiritual mentor and someone that I really looked up to. But I feel like we didn't always have very good activities to bond over together. So um, this became kind of a source of shame for me. And I grew up feeling ashamed of myself and very envious of other guys and wishing that I was more like them. Um, when I came into adolescence around middle school, high school, I, um, particularly for gym class, when you start like changing from school clothes to gym clothes and then back into your school clothes later, uh, I started comparing myself physically because if you look at me, I am tall and skinny and scrawny looking. And um, other people were like putting on muscle because they were football players or wrestlers. And um, so I was starting to compare myself even then and feeling even more shame and more guilt. And it was around that time too that I started to realize that there was more than just a desire to be like those men. Um, there was also a sexual attraction there. And being raised in a Christian environment, I was told that being gay was a sin. So I didn't want to come out to anybody for fear that I would be treated differently. Um, so essentially, I told myself that I wasn't going to tell anyone. I was going to keep this a secret, and I was going to pray to God to remove these desires from me and that no one would have to know. So I would spend what felt like every night praying to God, essentially begging him to remove these desires. And then when I would wake up and those desires hadn't gone, um, I blamed myself. I felt like I hadn't prayed hard enough or that somewhere deep down, I really didn't want to change, um, which wasn't true. I wouldn't have chosen these desires. Um, so, with this came a lot of like more guilt, more shame, but also in my keeping secrets and keeping this to myself, I was very isolated and I became very depressed. Um, I also suffered from a lot of anxiety, always worrying about if people would find out or not. Because um, it wasn't just enough to not tell people, but I couldn't act gay either. Um, so, it was a very isolating journey, and I'm really thankful that I was so close in my faith because God was the one person that I felt like knew, but I felt ashamed to come before him because I thought that I was holding something back or I wasn't willing to change. Um, so eventually I did come out in college and that was a good experience for me. I was well received, but part of that experience that made it so easy was because it was with a group of strangers, um, people that I had gotten to know in college and not people that I had lived around my whole life. Um, and if I wanted to leave that group of friends and find new college friends, it was a lot less risky than risking the people that I would face day in and day out in high school or at church. So. Once I came out, I was received really well. Um, 
but that starts a whole other journey for me um, that I don't have time to get into tonight, but I will return back to it later because as a writer, I love a good cliffhanger. So, um, and if you have any questions or anything, always feel free to ask. I'm always willing to listen and answer questions because I know there's a lot more depth than just what I shared tonight. So thank you guys. Thank you so much, Dylan. Next week, Spencer's going to tell a little of her story growing up in the church and what this was like. And then in two weeks, they're both going to talk about, after they've come out, what it's been like. And it's not a clean thing. It's quite messy, as Dylan said um, to me earlier this week. Okay. There are going to be three main parts to my lecture tonight. In the first section, I'm going to walk through the three primary reasons that the church believes that sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is a sin. Then I'm going to try to, I'm going to spend time looking at the three, what I think are the most compelling and popular reasons that Christians have changed and have begun to say it's okay to have sex outside of marriage or it's okay to have gay sex. So the three most popular reasons behind Christians affirming gay sex. And then at the very end, I'm going to focus on the question of love, which I think is the biggest issue. How can we love people? Um, how can we hold the traditional Christian sexual ethic and really and honestly love LGBTQ people? So those are the three sections. Now, all three of those could be this whole time. They're all three very complicated, but I only have this one whack at it tonight. Um, and so I'm going to move through those three, not as a way of trying to indicate they're simple or they're that easy, but just trying to get them on the board. And then if you have questions about any of them, please bring them up in the Q&A. Three, the three primary reasons, this is the first part of the lecture, the three primary reasons why gay sex is wrong. First of all, number one, when scripture talks about marriage, it says sex difference, male and female, is part of what marriage is. In the Bible, the most important question about marriage is never can two people of the same gender get married. That, that dominates the debates today, but in the Bible, that's not the most important question. Can two men get married or two women get married? In the Bible, when it comes to marriage, the most important question is this, what is marriage? Is marriage a consensual union between two adults who fall in love and commit to each other? Or is marriage fundamentally a one flesh union between two sexually different persons? You see, the most important passages of scripture in the Bible dealing with marriage put sex difference, male, female, 
biological sex, put sex difference into the very meaning of marriage. Now, we have time to only look at one passage tonight. Uh, Several years ago, when I did a set of lectures, I looked at Genesis chapter 1. Today, let's look at Genesis chapter 2, the second of the two foundational passages on marriage. If you brought along a Bible, turn, turn to Genesis chapter 2, and let's pay close attention to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man, talking about Adam, should be alone. I will make, and if you underline in your Bible, there's two words, and these are the critical words. I will make a helper fit for him. Or the NIV, I think, says a helper, a suitable helper. This, this last word, this is the most important word in this passage when it comes to marriage. Now, in Hebrew, these words are azir kenigdo. Azir kenigdo, two words. The first word, azir, it means a helper. Now, just by the way, for the patriarchal types, Um, Most of the time in the Bible, that word is associated with God as the helper of Israel. So most of the time in the Bible, it's a helper that's bigger and better. This is not an argument for complementarianism. God looks at Adam and he says he needs a helper, an Izir, but not just a helper. He needs an Izir Kenigdo. The second word is really important. It's a word that is a compound word in Hebrew. It comes from two words, ki, when it gets added to a word, it's ka, and that word means like. Neged, when it gets put together, becomes negigdo, but its root is neged. When neged is used as a compound word with a preceding preposition, it always means opposite. So this is a really tricky compound word to translate. God says Adam needs a helper that is like but opposite. Kenigdo. K-like. Neged. Opposite. Adam didn't need just another helper. He didn't need just another human. He needed a kenegdo helper. He needed similar but dissimilar That's what Eve is. Eve is exactly that. She's a human. So unlike the animals that he had just encountered, she's similar to him. But she's a female. She's neged. She's opposite him. Now, some people who affirm gay marriage, Christians that affirm gay marriage, they interpret this passage to say that the, the dissimilarity is not her femaleness, it's her personality. Quite frankly, I think that's a stretch. Certainly two people of the same sex can be different. They can have different personalities, different histories, different experiences, different physical traits or, pers- or whatever. One might be shy, the other is outgoing, one might be type A, the other type B, but it it seems clear from this passage that the otherness of Eve is precisely her sexual difference, 
not her different strength finders evaluation. Go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. That's the other foundational passage on marriage and family. And in Genesis 1, 27, we're told, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in the very next verse, God commands these males and females to be fruitful and increase in number. And then in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, they are described as a man and his wife. The complementarity includes sexuality. Part of the purpose of Genesis 2 is to explain what marriage is and why there are two sexes. In fact, listen to the conclusion of Genesis chapter 2. This is verses 24 and 25. Referring to the whole chapter. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. That's the conclusion of the chapter. And then in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall and the shame. And then Genesis chapter 4 picks up the story with verse 1, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. The entire sweep of the story identifies sexual diversity as fundamental to what marriage is. Now, when Jesus comes along, he doubles down on this view of marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, when he's debating with the Pharisees about divorce, he goes out of his way to remind us that marriage requires a male and a female. This is Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has therefore joined together, let not man separate. For Jesus... He didn't have to talk about God made them male and female. He could have dealt with the divorce issue. But Jesus refused to deal with the divorce issue without going back and saying, marriage is fundamentally about the union of different sexes. It's part of God's design. Marriage, by definition, requires sex difference. It requires male and female. By the way, I'm talking theologically, not politically. Right? There's a whole different... Thing going on when people are trying to decide is it legal in America for gay people to be married. I'm not addressing that. I'm talking about what is marriage theologically. In the Bible, marriage by definition is the lifelong union between two sexually different persons. That's what marriage is. Marriage is not the lifelong union between humans who fall in love. Oh, and by the way, we're Christians and we don't want men to get married. That's not the basis of the Bible. It's not this after-fact kind of, we're going to be homophobes. That is the most important thing in the Bible when it comes to thinking our way through the complicated landscape of these questions. Number two, a second reason Christianity teaches that same-sex sexual activity is a sin is because whenever the Bible mentions same-sex relationships, it always prohibits them. 
Now, to be honest, there are only a handful of passages in the Bible that directly mention same-sex sexual behavior. It's not an issue that comes up very often. The Bible's just not fixated on homosexuality. And yet, when it does come up, the Bible always prohibits it. There are five passages in the Bible that directly address same-sex sexual activity. I'm going to list them for you. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13. Those are the only two in the Old Testament. The rest of them, three of them, are in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. Two in the old, three in the new. I'm going to talk about just one of them. They all prohibit same-sex sexual behavior. Let's just talk about Romans chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. Here it is. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, here we're told that same-sex sex is unnatural. That doesn't mean it feels bad. It can feel great. It doesn't mean it's unfulfilling. It can be incredibly fulfilling. One of my friends says the best relationship she's ever had in her life was with her gay lover. That's not what the passage means. What it means is that sex between women and sex between men goes against God's purposes revealed in creation and reiterated throughout Scripture. It doesn't mean that gay sex is the worst sin. It doesn't mean that gay sex is the only form of sexual sin. It clearly marks out gay sex as serious, but not as unique. There are a lot of unnatural things. There are a lot of sexual sins that the reason they're sin is they go against the grain of the universe. Two, two lectures ago, my whole lecture was with the grain of the universe, uh, the purposes of sex. The Bible graciously points to lots of behavior that we should avoid because it's unnatural, because it doesn't go according to nature the way God intended it to be. Drunkenness, theft, greed, sex before marriage, adultery. The Bible, like any good friend or mentor, shows us the pitfalls and says, don't go there. But let's go back to the main point. Whenever the Bible directly addresses same-sex sexual activity, every time it brings it up, every single time, it prohibits it. There is no diversity in Scripture with regard to gay sex. And given what the Bible says about God's purposes for sex and marriage, this should not surprise us. God is opposed to all sexual activity outside of marriage. 
So it's not that the Bible opposes only gay sex and approves of anything else that straight people want to do. There's a lot of straight people sex the Bible prohibits. Now, let's remember where we are. There are three parts to tonight's lecture. First, I'm just going through the three primary reasons that according to Christianity, sex between men or sex between women is, is off limits. And so far we've seen, number one, that when the Bible talks about marriage, it says that sex difference is part of what marriage is. Number two, we've seen that whenever scripture talks about same-sex sexual activity, it always talks about it in a negative way. Now, the third primary reason for believing that God's design and intent is for sex to occur only between a man and a woman, a male and a female who are married, is this. The third reason we can believe this. We can believe this because this is what the church has always taught. For 2,000 years, and I'm talking about all branches of Christianity, Protestant, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox, Coptic, the list goes on. This is what most Christians at most times and in most places have believed. This is what Christians in Africa and Latin America and Asia and Charismatics and Reformed and Wesleyan and High Church and Low Church and Eastern Church and Western Church, the list goes on and on and on. There is a consensus across cultures and across centuries, and it has only been seriously called into question within the last 50 or 60 years, out of 2,000 years. Now, that matters. It matters what people who look different than us and were raised different than us, it matters to take stock of those who've lived before us and in other cultures, how they've interpreted the scriptures. Now, I'm not saying that there's been complete unanimity on every issue related to sexuality in the Christian tradition. I'm not saying that, but when it comes to the belief that sexual difference, being male and female, is fundamental to what marriage is and to who can have sex, there has been uniformity to what the church has believed matters to God and ought to matter to us. All right, so those are the three big reasons. Like I said, I'm just racing through each of them to try to get the three big reasons to believe the historic position on the board. And now what I want to talk about is three of the most popular reasons to revise the historic position of the church. Three reasons that when I read the books written by affirming Christians, even evangelical Christians who have shifted their view, these are the three most popular reasons to change your view and, and affirm same-sex sexual relations. Number one, one of the main arguments used is that consensual, monogamous, same-sex relationships were just not a part of the world of the Bible. So the Bible doesn't know what we're dealing with today. Since the world of the Bible was so patriarchal and had such strict boundaries... There was no room for the possibility of two men or two women of the same social status entering into a lifelong equal partnership like we're seeing frequently today. And so, as the argument goes, whenever the Bible is dealing with gay sex, yeah, it always prohibits it, but it's not dealing with the kind of gay sex we're talking about today. It's not dealing with people coming together with freedom and autonomy and consent. 
when the Bible is talking about gay sex, it's always talking about exploitative relationships, masters having sex with slaves, older men with younger boys, or victims of war being raped by their male conquerors, or, or, or of course, prostitution. So as the argument goes, that's what the ancient world had. It didn't have consensual, committed, monogamous, lifelong partnerships. And so since the people in the Bible didn't know about that, we can't really take their prohibitions and apply it. Now, if you want to read this argument for yourself, the, the very best version of it is, is online at the, at the most sophisticated and most compelling affirming organization in America today. It's called the Reformation Project. And if you want to engage with the affirming arguments, this is the best place to go. It's very serious scholarship. It's very compelling videos. It, it's done very well. In fact, just within the last month or so, they came out with a video, did same-sex marriage exist in biblical times, talking about this very issue. If you like to read books instead of going websites, I think the, the best current version of this is by Matthew Vines in his book, God and the Gay Christian, the biblical case in support of same-sex relationships. Every time I read Matthew Vines, I find him to be well-read, well-researched, um, committed to so many of the things that I'm committed to as a Christian. Now, I'm going to say three things, though, about this argument. I think that it's wrong. And, I, and I've tried to re-engage it multiple times in my life, saying, okay, let's give a fair listen. First of all, this issue really doesn't matter. It's peripheral to the core disagreement. It matters, but it doesn't matter to the core disagreement. Remember, the core issue for traditional Christianity is that sex difference is an intrinsic part of what marriage is and what marriage is for. The Christian view of marriage does not rest on whether or not the ancient world had examples of committed, consensual, same-sex relationship. And so for this argument to be enough to revise the global, historic, multi-denominational, 2,000-year agreement of the church on sexuality and marriage, it would have to show that sex difference is not essential to marriage. Second, take time on your own to go back and read the prohibition passages, the five of them. By the way, I didn't bring up Sodom, Leviticus 19, because it has nothing to do with gay sex. It's about violent gang rape. It, 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 it's not a part of this, this discussion. But go back and read the five prohibition passages against same-sex sexual relations, and you'll see there is no mention of master or slaves or prostitutes or rape or older men with teenage boys. In fact, the language of Leviticus simply says men, not master men, not older men, not victors of war. Men should not have sex with other men. And it doesn't there say slaves or younger boys or war victims. There is nothing in any of the scriptural passages that limits the prohibition to acts of exploitation. The commands in the Bible simply state in absolute and unqualified terms, men should not have sex with other men and women should not have sex with other women. Third, 
the ancient literary and archaeological evidence proves that actually, yeah, there were consensual monogamous long-term relationships in the ancient world. So first I said it really doesn't matter what happens in this debate because the Christian argument, it, it doesn't touch the core. Second, I said, yeah, even the passages themselves are more universal than that. And third, the evidence indicates ancient Jewish and Greco-Roman physicians, philosophers, astrologers, authors, novelists, poets, they thought and they wrote about biologically driven, from birth, fixed, lifelong, same-sex erotic orientation. And they wrote and thought about consensual, loving, same-sex marriages. This has been firmly and widely established by both non-affirming and affirming Christian and non-Christian, conservative and progressive historians, biblical scholars, philosophers, scholars of literature and archaeology and sociology. The ancient Greco-Roman and Jewish world knew about both exploitative same-sex relationships and consensual committed same-status, same-sex sexual relationships. All right. That's the first argument, and that's the reasons I disagree with it. The second really popular argument that Christians who've shifted and affirmed gay sex, gay marriage, is the ethical trajectory argument. That sounds fancy, but you'll recognize it. It's the idea that what we read in the beginning of the Bible grows... And there's a trajectory that lands in affirmation. Basically, the idea is that the Bible doesn't always give us a complete or fully developed position on ethical matters. Slavery, for example. In the beginning of the Bible, it seems kind of positively related to. The Bible never comes out and condemns slavery as an institution. But you can see these rumblings along the way, some challenges to it. And there's this trajectory in the Bible that doesn't condemn slavery, but definitely points toward a condemnation of slavery that eventually came onto the world scene. Some argue you can see the same thing with women in the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's very patriarchal. In the New Testament, there's a movement toward full equality and liberation. And when you follow the trajectory toward its logical conclusion, the patriarchal fades away and the egalitarian blossoms. Now, let's assume all that's true, that there's an ethical trajectory in the Bible with regard to slavery and women. It's irrelevant. The question about sexuality then would become, is there a trajectory? Let's assume the, ethical, the trajectory um, way of reading the Bible and determining ethics is legitimate. The question becomes, can we identify an ethical trajectory in Scripture for same-sex relationships? Slavery gets deconstructed as you move along. Women get empowered as you move along. Does the Bible do the same with same-sex behavior? Does it move from prohibiting it to blessing it? Is there anything in the Bible to suggest that same-sex sexual behavior might be included in God's good plan for us? And we're now beginning to see it. No. From Genesis to Revelation, there is no change on the biblical boundaries to sex. And that's remarkable. Sex, 
Same-sex sexual behavior actually is one of the few ethical issues that the Bible is totally uniform on. There are many issues that there's a diversity of voices in the Bible, and you have to work to see how they fit together. There is not a diversity of voices on this issue in the Bible. We do see things like polygamy in the beginning that gets deconstructed. We see Jesus reversing the trajectory when it comes to divorce. Divorce had gone from very strict, not allowed, to being allowed a lot. Jesus comes along, tightens the view, goes back to the view at the beginning of the Bible. So the only sexual issue in the Bible that Jesus changes the trajectory on is divorce, which he makes stricter than it had become. All right. Those are two arguments. They're very serious, and they're way more serious than, than just three minutes or whatever talking about them takes into account. But it's the third argument that I think is the most, the most common and the most compelling to me. It's the argument from orientation. It often goes something like this. If someone who's gay... If they didn't choose to be that way, if they don't have a choice in it, they're just attracted to who they're attracted to, then what's wrong with it? Being gay is who they are. It's who God created them to be. It's, it just feels so unkind to tell somebody, sorry, sucks being you. You're not straight. No marriage, no sex. It just feels unkind. As we try to listen really close to this particular objection, I think it's important to be very careful. The fact is we don't know if people are born gay or not. We don't. For several decades, there has been a massive amount of funding poured into the search for a biological basis to same-sex attraction. There have been twin studies, fraternal birth order studies, Handedness studies, animal models, genetic research, hormonal studies, research into brain symmetry and brain neural connections. The search for a biological origin to homosexuality has been the primary focus of scientific research. Studies focusing on environmental contributions have not received funding. We don't know as much as we want to know or need to know about how it comes to be that the majority of the population is heterosexual and somewhere between on the low end 3% and the high end 7% of the population is same-sex attracted. In fact, the more that scientists have studied sexuality, the more they've discovered how much we don't know, how much we thought we knew is wrong, and how much of our, our kind of the future of this is just a big blur to us. Here's the most recent study, uh, summary of scientific findings by the American Psychological Association. Quote, there is no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops a homosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. I'm sorry, a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. 
Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles. Most people experience little or no sense of choice about their sexual orientation. That's the most recent summary of the data by the American Psychological Association. I think, I think the last two statements are really important. First of all, there are probably many factors that contribute to same-sex attraction, and these factors vary from person to person. Second, most people do not choose their orientation. Every lesbian, gay, bisexual person I've spoken with about the origins of their sexuality have said they just found themselves attracted. They didn't wake up and say, ooh, I want this. Now back to the question at hand. If people don't choose their sexual orientation, how can we say that something else, some, someone, um, how can we say that something they did not choose, something that's just inside of them, how can we say it's wrong? And I feel the weight of that. And I want to be very careful and say this in as kind of way I can without sounding cold or robotic or insensitive. The Christian sexual ethic does not hinge on where the attraction comes from. Whether an impulse comes from within or is the result of experiences or environment or some combination, Christianity teaches that we are all to evaluate all of our impulses in light of God's revealed will for behavior and whether a pattern of behavior ought to characterize us over time. All of us have to learn to think beyond God made me this way to how does God want me to grow in love and Christ-likeness so that I display the full range of the fruit of the Spirit in my life. Now, I think the main reasons why some Christians have changed their view on sexuality and marriage is love. It's because of love. It's because of what I just talked about, but it's also because of the lack of love for the LGBTQ people from the church. And it's because of the harm done by the church. In fact, for the last part of this lecture, I want to focus directly on this issue. Can we truly love and honor LGBTQ people while believing that all sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is sin? And I, I want to get very personal for a minute. Can you, can I, can our church truly love LGBTQ people without changing our theology? This is an incredibly important question because I think most of us, if we have to choose between doctrine and love, we're going to choose love. It seems to me that most straight Christians who embrace an affirming theology do so because they believe it's the only way to truly love and honor their LGBTQ friends and family members. Theologically, the primary question is, is the historic view of marriage true? But for many of us, the love question, is it loving, is the more important question. Look, statistics are tricky. Uh, You've probably heard the saying, there are three kinds of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. <laughs> and yet, statistics can be helpful. So I'm going to share some jaw-dropping statistics now. They come from a massive study conducted over a six-year period that drew together Northwestern University, the University of Chicago, 
um, atheists and committed Christians, pro-LGBTQ rights scientists and anti-LGBTQ rights scientists. It, it, it's this remarkable study. It's peer-reviewed. The results of it um, and, and the survey itself and analysis of it can be found in a book by Andrew Marin called Us Versus Us, The Untold Story of Religion in the LGBTQ Community. Three, three jaw-dropping statistics with some other statistics woven in. Number one, 86% of the LGBTQ community in America was raised in the church. That is remarkable. Only 75% of Americans were raised in the church. So the LGBTQ community raised in the church is 11 points higher than the average American. And by the way, three quarters of the gay community were raised in theologically conservative churches. A way higher percentage than any other community group in America. Number two. 54% of the LGBTQ people left the church when they turned 18 and they were no longer forced to go to church by their parents. 54%. That is double the amount of the general American population who left the church at 18. And only 21% of the LGBTQ people who left the church left because of the church's belief. The primary reason for leaving the church was not the doctrine. It was negative experiences. They did not feel safe. They were kicked out after coming out. They were excluded from relationships. The church was unwilling to even talk about sexuality. One of my gay friends left the church and joined a very progressive affirming church because he said, even though I believe they were wrong and I was gay and I and I disagreed with the life I was living, at least they talked about the stuff. Another big reason for leaving was they were not allowed to volunteer, even if they were not having gay sex, but just because they were attracted to the same sex, they were no longer allowed to volunteer. This was a significant reason for leaving the church. Third set of statistics, and this is the crazy one. Only 9% of the general American population has a, that has abandoned the church indicates they are open to returning to the church. So in the general population, those who've left the church, only 9% of them are willing to come back. The LGBTQ population that left the church, 76% want to come back or open to coming back compared to 9% of the general population. Look, real quick, this represents 8 million people. Eight million LGBTQ people are open to coming back to the church. Eight million sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors. Now, the survey clearly indicated they are open to returning to the church on one condition. Not that the church changes its doctrine. The one condition is that the church changes, not theologically. Only 8% of those who want to come back say the church will have to change its doctrine before we come back. Only 8%. All the rest of them said the thing that has to change is love. They desire to be engaged, they said, in a loving, patient, 
realistic, authentic, and supportive community. Just be who we are. Just live up to what all our hype is about. That's all. Now, as I read this survey, here's the conclusion I've drawn. It is not our theology that has driven the LGBTQ community away. That's an urban myth. The surveys have proven that wrong. It's our lack of love. It's our lack of care. Our doctrine isn't the problem. The progressive church that shifted its doctrine made a a gamble, and it was the wrong gamble. Not under the admission of the LGBT community themselves. It's not our doctrine. It's our posture. Let me read just two quick personal testimonies to illustrate what I'm saying. One has been a 29-year-old gay man raised in the church. Quote, I left the church because I couldn't find one person who cared enough to listen to my story. I mean, really listen. I'm talking about listening to the extent of investing into my journey with my faith so deeply that I can actually call them brother or sister and mean it. Tasha, a 21-year-old lesbian living in Miami, quote, all I wanted was to feel loved by those in the church I grew up with. Love is giving me time to be with you, to figure this out together. If you let any church people read this, Tell them I don't have to be right in their eyes to feel loved by them. All I need is to be dignified in our disagreement. Church, we don't need to change our theology of marriage to love and honor, to truly love and honor LGBTQ people. Look at it this way. At the start of the gay rights movement, 1969, evangelicalism's leading voices Billy Graham, Francis Schaeffer, John Stott, and C.S. Lewis, who had died just a few years before, all of them had cast a positive vision for our gay brothers and sisters. But then over the course of the 70s and 80s, a new idea entered the evangelical world. The idea that if you're gay and a Christian, the goal of your journey needs to be transformed to heterosexual. The goal is to pray the gay away. The goal was to make homosexuals dissolve into the heterosexual majority. That if you were gay, when you came to Christ, it was your duty to learn to be like heterosexuals and that heterosexuals have nothing to learn from the homosexuals. As it happens, this great 40-year experiment of shoving homosexuals into the Holy Spirit's Play-Doh factory and squeezing them out into perfectly straight lines has been a colossal failure. All the, main, all the man, men's ministry retreats, all the talk therapy, all the slow-release synthetic estrogen injections and electroshock therapy have left the majority of people unchanged. It didn't work. 40 years we tried to change gay people into straight people. It didn't work. And often traumatized, sometimes married with kids or at least divorced with kids, but still gay. The 2013 closure of Exodus International, the largest pray the gay away ministry in the world, marked the beginning of the end of the search for a cure for homosexuality. By the grace of God, the cure approach didn't work. By the grace of God. 
And in the wake of the failure of the cure approach, we've been forced to ask over the last decade whether there is another way in which same-sex desires can be related to. And we can find an alternative path. We find this path winding its way right through the scriptures, utterly ignored for the past half a century, and yet necessary for our gay brothers and sisters. What if instead of trying to switch someone's sexual desires from homo to hetero, what if instead of that, a gay man or a gay woman learned to live with their gay desires expressed chastely? What if a Christian lesbian sought to honor and express her longings to love, to share her life with, to commit, to cherish, to serve, to make a home with, and become family to someone of the same sex in a chaste way? What I'm getting at is the fact that the Bible uses, now listen very close, this is a very nuanced thing I'm gonna say. The Bible uses both opposite sex love and same-sex love to teach us what love is. Both kinds of love are images of the love that God has for people and for our souls. Both kinds of love are used as models in the Bible for how to live in relationship to God. Now, don't get me wrong. Same-sex love and Opposite-sex love are not interchangeable. They have different structures and different expressions. Whenever the Bible uses sexual love to teach us about the mutual love of God and humans, it's always the love of a man and a woman, as in the Song of Solomon or Ephesians 5. Whenever the Bible uses same-sex love, which it does a lot, to teach us about God's love, in our love for him, it's always non-sexual same-sex love. In scripture, same-sex love and opposite-sex love are equally intimate, equally sacrificial, equally real and holy, but they have different structures. There are three huge examples in the Bible of same-sex love that, that are not peripheral to the Bible. They are in the very heart of the story the Bible tells. None of these three pairs of same-sex intimate friendships are marginal to the plot line of the Bible. They're not sexual, but they are same-sex love. David and Jonathan... I have loved, your love to me has been better than the love of women, David said to Jonathan. And that is, that is central to the plot line of the Bible. Ruth and Naomi. Do you know that the, the verse we quote at heterosexual marriages, I will leave my people. I will be true to you and your people. And where you go, I will go. And your God will be my God. That is the affirmation of love between two women. Not sexual love, but love between women. And of course, the third most powerful same-sex love in the Bible is, anybody try? Jesus and John. <laughs> the beginning of John's gospel says that Jesus is in the klopas, the bosom, the breast of the Father. At the end of John's gospel, it says that John the beloved laid his head on the klopas of Jesus. 
Each of these same-sex love stories are non-sexual and non-marital, and yet they are truly love stories. And if we do not receive our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, we will not learn same-sex love the way we're supposed to learn it. God's love for us and for ours and ours for him, the Bible holds this up for us. Through same-sex friendships that are deep and intimate in ways that heterosexual married love falls short. The Bible needs both to give us the full image of the love of God. In each of these same-sex love stories in the Bible, we find the way that the longing to love another person of the same gender is a lamp given by God to us for the path ahead. There is so much beauty and so much self-gift and holy, so much holiness in our own same-sex loves and in the same-sex loves of the people around us. Scripture is not silent about this beauty. These loves are not simply blank spaces, places where God turns his face away. God in his Bible and in the history of the church offers us guidance on how to bring our same-sex loves into harmony with his will. And if we can't find that path, we're going to miss half the fish. This is what I mean by space at the table, homosexuality and Christian faithfulness. And I know there are so many loose ends, and um, let's talk about it. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your word. Thank you for these gifts to us. Help us to see them well. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, you've got three slips of paper and an index card. We're going to do in less than five minutes. You need to write your questions. Index card for me, Dylan, and Spencer who come up. Um, the three slips of paper, questions about my lecture um, for me. We're doing content first, right? Yes. Okay. Um, if I were to invite my gay friend, currently single, to incarnation, would they have full access, including Eucharist and membership? That's a great question. So as you saw in the handout we gave last week, there is a wide diversity of, of um, views. My, my goal for our church is to work through all of our policies. I think there's three levels, doctrine, policy, and posture. This is a policy question. Who can be a member? Who can come to the table? Blah, 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 blah. We've got a lot of work to do in the leadership of our church, and here's going to be the goal. My goal is that we treat our gay brothers and sisters exactly the same way as we treat our straight brothers and sisters. So, I mean, don't raise your hands, but those of you who are dating and you're in our church and sometimes you mess up and have sex, are we going to keep you from the table? So I really do want us to become not hypocrites and to treat all sexual orientations the same. 
when it comes to all the levels of the church. And there's a lot of work to do on, to flush that all the way through the system. So. Thank you. So I think the answer would be to you if you brought your gay friend would be we would treat them just like if you brought your straight friend. We treat them the same way. So building off of that question, um, someone has asked, how can you call uh, denying gay people the fulfillment of sexual union with the person they love? How can that be kind? How could that be loving? Wouldn't that just be cruel to say you can't be in sexual union with someone you love? Yeah. Um, I think... That, that, is, that, is one of, that is right to the heart of the issue. And I think it's taken this whole series to answer that. You know, I spent several weeks talking about that we don't have to believe that sex is a fundamental need the way food and clothing and shelter are. Part of what drives that question is I'm denying somebody because we all are willing to deny people things. To say, oh, that's not good for you. That's not good for the world. You can't do that. When, when you feel inside of you this push that why would you deny anybody that, then part of what you've got to ask is, is this something that when I deny it to somebody, it, it's a, a need that is going to end their life, the way oxygen or food or whatever is. So I spent a lot of time talking about that. And then tonight I talked more about um, the way... I would also say that the church denies everybody sex. Um, most people, for a significant part of their life, sex is out of boundary according to God's word. If you're not married, all the time before you get married. If you are married and you deeply desire sex with your neighbor, the Bible and the church says no. Well, I love my neighbor more than I love my spouse. Well, my spouse can no longer have sex with me because of either psychology or biology or whatever, or trauma. So remember, this is not a thing that's being picked out against the LGBTQ community. Um, now, that would be cruel if a fulfilling life was impossible apart from sex. That would be cruel. But it is the steadfast belief of the church that you can have a fully fulfilling life without sex. And the idea that you can't is warping a lot of marriages where one with a higher sex drive is overly pressurizing one with a lower sex drive. Um, or somebody goes through a season of life where this is not a thing that's good for them. So I think that Starting about 100 years ago, and we began to believe that the denial of sex is akin to the denial of food. It strikes to the core of per a person, and it diminishes them. And because I disagree with that, then I could say, yeah, I think that we can, and it's not a mean thing to do. Now, it's hard, super hard, but it's not necessarily mean. So this is an important question, I think, but it might push you a little bit, and that is how does the theological stance, the orthodox teaching of the church that you've outlined here today, uh, 
how does that uh, affect our political engagement and all the issues swirling around this in our society? So just a couple of things. Um, I deliberately bracketed that out for a reason. One reason is it was unfair of Americans to deny marriage to our LGBTQ brothers and sisters and not think about what all was getting taken off the table for them. Because marriage in America is more than a political reality, it's a political reality. It has to do with who can come to see you in a hospital when you're sick. It has to do with who can inherit. It has to do with who can sign for a child to have access to medical. It has to do with so many things. And because a lot of right-wing Americans approached that debate as if it was a theological debate and did not stop and ask the political implications, the legal implications, the, all these things, because of that, all what they were being heard of saying by the LGBTQ community is, we don't want you to get to visit each other in the ICU. We don't really care that you can't visit each other. We don't really care that this child can't blah, 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 because we didn't separate those two out. So th those are some thoughts that help you see that the political conversation it relates to, but it is distinct from the theological conversation. So then the follow-up question becomes, do I, in this confusing set of words I've just used, think that affirm gay marriage? And that would be a very long conversation for us to sit and talk about what exactly do you mean by gay marriage? And can we find ways of dignifying humans that doesn't require them to be Christian to get dignity under the law? That's a complicated question. That's a political area. And I think that's as far as I can go now. Um, there's two questions here that I think are both getting at sort of the pastoral implications of um, a monogamous... Let, let, me, let me just go back. Yeah. We weren't given the option of a nuanced conversation on the gay marriage debate. Here's where I think I am. I think that I'm at, I'm at we should not have gay marriage, but we, if we're not going to have gay marriage, we have to find other ways in the law to prevent, protect human rights and dignity. That we can't, we can't only have no gay marriage and no other avenues for legal, political kind of protections. So the trick when I say I'm, a, I'm not in favor of gay marriage, it sounds like that's all I'm saying. I would only say that if we could also find other creative ways. So let me leave it there since that clears it all up. <laughs> okay, sorry, Joanna. Okay. So a pastoral implication of um, a gay couple that's um, monogamous and married. Um, how would you engage this couple in love and in truth of biblical teaching? And then I think as a follow-up question, if the answer is they can live chastely, you know, you were kind of describing a scenario of, of, of chaste love, same-sex love, would you ask the same thing of two people who were unbiblically divorced and married to each other? Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> By the way, the LGBTQ community is calling the evangelical church out for its hypocrisy on divorce. Yeah. 
It is very, the evangelical church is so progressive on divorce. They will remarry all day long, by and large. But boy, don't be gay. Now, we're going to get into the Bible on that one. So I love that. So first of all, I want to approach anybody who comes to our church as if a sin they struggle with does not define them. Like those of you who are struggling with pornography, and you tell me about it, you don't want every time I come up to you, been like, how's it going, you know? <laughs> Any slip-ups this week? Like that dehumanizes us, doesn't it? When any of us get reduced down. Not only does it dehumanize us, it doesn't help us. Like, I, it doesn't help me. I, I'm thankful that Steve Hay over here, the retired pastor of, of Asbury, I'm thankful to know that no matter what I struggle with, when I relate to Steve, he's going to see me bearing the image of Christ, and we're going to get around in appropriate times, in appropriate ways, and not too frequently to my struggles. So I, I want to deal with anybody like that because that's how we deal with heterosexuals in our church. That's how we deal with the heterosexuals who are dating and sleeping together in our church. And I want us to learn to see just like we see heterosexuals full of possibility and full of challenges, I want us to see the, the gay community that way too. So if a couple comes to our church and they're married and they're gay and they're monogamous, the problem is their sin is, is obvious, isn't it? Whereas your sin is just hidden. Or... Or not only, also the ways you disagree with the church can be hidden. So even if they think it's okay, and I think that we've got so much work to do to flesh out policy, like I said, doctrine, policy, posture. I, I would want to treat, I would want to think hard through the heterosexual conversation. How do we treat heterosexuals? Let's treat homosexuals the same way, gay people the same way. Eventually, I think that a conversation would have to occur. Right now, you cannot be a member of our church if you do not affirm the historic position on, on the doctrine of sexuality. You just have to affirm that you believe that's what the church believes or you agree with it. So it would come up. And then there'd be a very long pastoral relationship working out the implications of this in their life and how this plays out. And um, I've never had to have it, which I'm ashamed of that. I'm ashamed that we've never had to have this conversation in our church. And I think that we'll get much better at it as the decades go by. Okay. All right. Do we shift now? Uh, yeah. Spencer and Dylan, if you guys will come up here and join me. Hey, babe. Hey, guys. This is Spencer. For those of you who weren't here last week, she's my favorite child of our five. Well, she's in the top three. And Dylan. All right. Okay. This question is for Spencer. And Spencer, I'm going to read it in its entirety because it says a couple things. Spencer, thank you for being here. You're so brave. 
Please respond to what your dad said about the love of the LGBTQ person as compared to the church accepting same-sex marriage. Does this ring true for you? Yeah. Sorry. Does how, please respond to what your dad said about the love of the LGBTQ person as compared to the church accepting same-sex marriage. Does this ring true to you? So do, do you feel, I think the question is getting at, do you feel any rift between um, the love of the person and not affirming same-sex marriage? Does that feel like a, a disagreement or does that feel like that can stand in agreement with you? I think it depends on, oh, sorry, that's really loud. I think it depends on how they go about it and the wording that they use and the phrasing that they use when they're talking to you along with the questions that they're asking you because I think sometimes the questions that people ask you can really reveal how they truly feel about things. And so I think it depends, but specifically between my father and I, it has caused some issues, <laughs> but all of them have been very civil and mature and none of has been relationship ending for me. Um, I think the conversations have become easier to have as I've gotten older and I've become more mature and I'm able to fully form my thoughts and think about them before I speak. So does You're that answer the question? Nice. I think that I've done a lot to hurt you. And I think that I'm learning. Yeah. But I don't think you're, it's okay for okay. you to say the truth. Sometimes it's very bad. Yeah. But <laughs> also, but also I do know that my dad loves me. Like Dylan was saying, he never questioned his parents' love for him. And I've never questioned my parents' love for me. But it is really hard sometimes. Callie, is it fair to say part of the question is, Spencer, do you buy it that I say I disagree with you and I love you? Is that? Yeah, yeah, I think that's part of it. So when your dad says, I don't think same-sex marriage is, is natural and part of the grain of the universe, is that, can you still hear I love you and that makes sense or does that feel like a, a negation? You can tell the truth. I think that when we were initially, my, when my father and I were initially having this conversation, it felt a lot more hateful than it does now, but I think after all of the research and deep delving that he's done on his end, it's flipped, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, just through the respect that I've seen that he's showed me and his, both of my parents have attempted to show me, um, it does not feel hateful anymore. I think this question might be directed uh, for Dylan, although it could be answered by either uh, person. And that is, uh, now that you are out, um, how do you feel about being more of yourself in public? You talked about uh, not feeling that you could act in masculine, quote, ways. How do you feel about just sort of being yourself? It's still a challenge, um, especially depending where I'm at. So here, I feel pretty comfortable. Um, but I've, like, when I go back home, it might feel a little bit more uncomfortable for me. Um, it depends on the space. Um, but deep down, I feel more self-assured of my own identity, and I don't question or doubt that I'm a man. Um, those same issues that I was growing up with, um, of, like, shame or feeling like I wasn't masculine, um, they're still present, but not nearly as bad as they were before. Um, 
So there's kind of a difference in like my own inward feelings towards myself versus the communities and groups that I'm a part of. Um, so I'm inwardly pretty okay. Um, but outwardly, it just depends on kind of the group or where I'm at. I think this one's probably for Spencer. A couple people asked just about definitions, so the difference between being queer and bisexual, queer versus gay, how you would define that term, Okay. if you're comfortable. Yeah, um, I recognize a lot of new faces. I kind of touched on this last week, and I'll talk more about it next week when I tell more of my personal story, but I just use queer as an umbrella term for my sexuality, so I haven't really defined myself or put myself into any particular box as of right now, and I found that queer is the easiest and most gentle way to kind of let people know, hey, I'm gay, without saying, hey, I'm gay, and also while kind of leaving room for my own personal journey and identity. Thanks. I think it's really important to recognize something about language here. By the early 1990s, homosexual had become a very offensive term to the majority of the homosexual community for three primary reasons. One, it was a part of the DSM-1 and 2, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which defined homosexuality as a disease. Now, that changed after the second one, and so by the early 1990s, homosexual had become associated with disease and criminology. Okay? Um, secondly, it sounds clinical. It doesn't sound warm. Like, you're a heterosexual, but you're a homosexual. Like, um, and uh, so I think we need to allow communities to let us know the language that makes them feel dignified. Queer was quite negative for several decades, but Spencer's generation um, has begun to rehabilitate the term and feel for some particular reasons why it's a good term. It, it doesn't load gender into it. Some people by queer, I think you've told me, are not only talking about their sexuality, they're talking about their gender sense. Can you say something about that? Yeah, so some people will, like my dad just said, refer to themselves as queer and they'll be talking about their gender identity and other people, like myself, will refer to themselves as queer talking about their sexual identity. So that is something, there's a lot of nuance in it and it's different on a person-to-person -person basis. So if you were to meet someone as soon as you leave the church today and they tell you that they're queer, it could mean something completely different than what I mean by it, but it is a very broad umbrella term to kind of just give you a general idea of what kind of person you're talking to. And if you have a relationship with them, you can say, do you mind if I ask you what you mean by that? Yes. So that kind of follows up with a question that I just wanted to ask about. Um, you guys said whenever you've introduced yourselves, you begin with your pronouns. So kind of a good way for people as they're interacting with people, great ways to ask that, the importance of that. I read something on the sheet about studies have shown a 40 to 60% reduction um, when a trans teen is called by their chosen pronoun, reduction in um, suicidal thoughts. So just kind of maybe some ways that people can ask about that or the importance of using your chosen pronoun. 
let me, let me just say in response to what she said, there is a 40, 40 to 60% reduction in suicidality among teens that are gender dysphoric if one adult, just one, will call them by their chosen name or pronoun. So forget your theological views. Just reduce suicidality. Like, isn't that a theological move? Like, I don't want you to kill yourself. And if there's no other adult calling you by your pronoun or your name, I'll be the one. And we can get to the big conversation later. Let's today save your life. So. Yeah, um, I don't feel like I have a lot of expertise in this area because I identify with my gender pronouns given to me at birth and have stuck with my like birth given name. But um, I have friends who go by different pronouns or have different names than those that they were given at birth. And if they ask me to call them by their name or by their pronouns, I don't really, I just go along with them. I don't question it. Because um, I think that that is respectful of their own identity, their own choice. Um, and if it's a conversation I wanna have with them, that's not something I bring up immediately. That's something I bring up like later when we're hanging out and it's just me and them. And it's not like, you know, in a public space on the spot. Well, why do you go by those pronouns? Um, so just being very gentle, allow people to use pronouns, names that they choose. And if you want to open discussion, typically they're open to discussion, but you just have to do it in the right environment. So. I can add something else as well. I think something that I've even struggled with is when I initially meet someone, specifically if they're androgynous looking and I can't really tell what their gender identity is, I automatically will use they, them pronouns because most queer people I know in this day and age would rather be misgendered using they, them pronouns than using he, him, or she, her pronouns. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I try to think about that and also most people, if you mess up, it's okay. Just move on. Don't make a big deal out of it. Just correct yourself. He, oh, they, and just keep on talking. Um, and I think like Dylan said, obviously, if that's a conversation you want to have with that person, bring it up in a safe and private environment and probably not in front of a group of people just because you never know who that person is out to or where they feel safe and comfortable. Thank you. That's our last question. All right. Thanks, guys. Y'all are awesome. I'm going to tell you about some books real quick. If you're interested in the research on the LGBTQ community in the church, it's mind-boggling. This is that book, Us Versus Us. 76% um, of the LGBTQ. There's a, we don't know why, by the way. That's fascinating. Why is the church producing more LGBTQ people? Then why is that happening? It's, fa it's a, something that we don't know about yet. Great book written by a father and a son. The father is a theologian. The son is a gay man who is not in the church and who fundamentally disagrees with his dad's views, lives a life different than his dad, and they wrote a book together about how can people who disagree on the issue, 
be in a relationship of love. And I stole the title of this session from them, Space at the Table. All right. Um, if you're interested in that business I was doing about the evangelical leaders prior to 1969 had a posture of care and not cure, and that we had a 40-year failed experiment of trying. You know, the reason Dylan prayed and prayed and prayed, God, take this away. There was a time where gay Christians didn't pray that prayer. That came because the church has not, it's had a posture that whether you ever said it or not, the goal with homosexuals was to get straight. This is the story of that. It's excellent. Um, a couple of just super good books on the whole issue of why does the Bible say this stuff? People to be loved by Preston Sprinkle. Is God anti-gay? This is a great book and it's so little. I mean, it's like 60 pages that are quarter pages. Um, this business I did at the very end, you rats, I, I didn't bring this, where I'm trying to say that we need to expand the word gay beyond sex and we need to receive the gifts of the gay community. And I was doing that stuff with John and Jesus and um, Ruth and Naomi and all that. This book talks about it in a beautiful way. Utterly committed Christian, absolutely, she's a gay woman committed to celibacy. And she's the one who's trying to help us see that there's more to the LGBTQ person than their erotic fallenness. And if we wipe, away, wipe them away, we're also wiping away gifts. So this is a book that develops that very well. It's called Tenderness. Um, if you want to read probably the easiest to read, best book affirming of the gay position by a Christian, God and the Gay Christian, this is that one by Matthew Vines. And then there's some other books up here. If you're a psychologist, mental health workers, how should Christians think about sex? No, that's not the right one. Forget all that. Okay. And then last, I have extra copies of books that I've accidentally bought two of. Washington Waiting by Wesley Hill, um, a Christian's memoir, so good. Um, the Church and Same-Sex Attraction. And Janelle, this is yours, but we got two copies, so don't, don't. I knew she was going to, she is so possessive about her books. When they end up in my library, we have another one. Uh, Why Gender Matters. These are my, these are for giveaway. And also my notes are for giveaway. And lastly, and we'll be done, Spencer and Dylan and me and Janelle are going to the Golden Pony. Anybody who wants to go and talk about this stuff around bar food at the Golden Pony, we're going to leave here in about 20 minutes. They're going to stick around to chit-chat with you guys, and then we're going to go over there. Your, the, your food is on you, all right? But the conversation is on us. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you, God, for making Dylan. Thank you for making Spencer. Thank you for this church that we can have this conversation. In Jesus' name, amen.